Okay, uh, when I, I always like to tell little stories about my life, you guys get to know me. Uh, I worked at summer camp for two years. I didn't work at Camp Kalakwa up the road, but I did uh, work at this camp called Nasoka Pines Ranch uh, in South Carolina. I worked there two years, and it was some of the best summers of my entire life. Uh, and so, as a counselor, and it's a smaller camp than Kalakwa. Like at Kalakwa, you might get hired to like just be a lifeguard or just be a counselor. At Nasoka, we pulled double duty. So you like you were a counselor. And you would also, like, go and do your own thing. Uh, like, one year I did uh, uh, archery and frisbee golf and model rockets and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then there were times when your kids would go swimming that you would go with them to the pool and just help out the lifeguards, not in a super official capacity, but just kind of looking around and saying, like, hey, that kid looks like he's sinking. Like, you guys should do something about it, right? Um, <laughs> humor, guys. Uh, And anyway, because not everybody knows how to swim, uh, what we would do day one, parents would drop their kids off, right? We would do a swim test, right? And anyone who didn't know how to swim, they would get this yellow wristband. And sometimes the kids would be like, well, that's not fair. That's embarrassing. I was like, well, would you rather be embarrassed and alive or not embarrassed and not alive? right? Uh, So they took the wristband. And what would happen, the reason we would do the test for everyone, every single person, no matter they were the future Michael Phelps or not, everyone took the uh, swim test. Why? Because kids lie. That's crazy. Not these kids here at this church, but those kids lied, right? All the parents laugh. Um, So there was uh, this one, I think it was my second year there, and um, this, this mom comes to drop off her son, and they come in, they see the cabin, and, and she tells us from the very beginning, hi, this is, I don't remember his name, we'll just say, this is little Timmy. Little Timmy doesn't know how to swim. Now, little Timmy was about eight years old, so he's like, mom, I can swim. Don't tell the mom, like, I can swim. It's like, don't worry, ma'am, we all do a swim test, and, you know, if he can swim, then he doesn't have the wristband, he's good to go. Uh, and so... We get to the pool, right? After all the kids are dropped off, parents go home, we get to the pool, and this is what the swim test was. We would put all the kids, and there are a bunch of lifeguards around, so they're totally safe. Everybody's watching, and we'd say, you guys, if you're taking the test, you jump into the deep end, and you tread water for 30 seconds, and then you swim to one of the edges and you climb out. If you can tread water and swim to the other side, no problem, you're good, right? So little Timmy, who was adamant, I can swim, mom, leave me alone, jumps into the pool and immediately begins to sink. Like immediately, thrashing, gulping, like, oh, I can't breathe. And he's going down. He's going, and, you know, like I said, the lifeguards are there. So they just kind of pluck him up out of the water and sit him down. And uh, he took that wristband like a champ, right? Uh, And so... He, uh, for the rest of camp, right, had that wristband on, let us know, hey, this kid can't swim. Doesn't mean you were never allowed in the pool again. It just means, listen, you got to stay on the shallow end where everybody can stand, okay? And so, but the problem was, Timmy, I think, had been so traumatized (laughs) by his failed swim test that he wouldn't even go into the shallow end unless he had one of those pool noodles, right? So he's holding on to the pool noodle, and it's like, whatever, you know, every kid has their little quirk, and it's fun, and whatever, but he's holding on to the pool noodle, and so while he's holding on to that, his legs kind of would like, you know what I mean? Like, they would float up, 
So he's just hanging out, doing his thing. And I don't remember how exactly it happened, but I was there uh, observing, and somehow he got separated from his floaty. Immediately, Timmy panics, right? Little Timmy, he's thrashing around, gulping for air. Help, help, oh my goodness. And, and, And we're screaming at him, stand up, Timmy, stand up. You're going to be, Timmy. And we're yelling at him. And finally, like, one of the lifeguards looks at me. is like, that's your kid, right? Like, go get him. I was like, oh. So (laughs) So I get into the pool. And I'm standing right next to him. Like, Timmy, Timmy, stand up, right? I'm kind of like holding him so that he won't go under. I'm like, Timmy, stand. Finally, I pick him up out of the water. And I'm holding him up like this. And I'm like, Timmy, straighten your legs. And I set him down, and he stood. And he was like, oh, oh, man. Oh. I was like, Timmy, you can, you can stand here. The water is shallow enough for you to be able to do that. And it's, just, it's a funny story. I mean, it, it is funny, but it is like a reminder of life, right? Sometimes we can be so overwhelmed by our current state, right, our current situation, that we don't realize that, like, we're safe the whole time, Right? Because all we see, right, is the water coming over us, right? All we see is like, hey, I can't breathe. All I see are the bad things. And like maybe the whole world is yelling at you, just stand up. But we're too focused on what's going on. So we're in Exodus, and I want to give you guys some context, right? It's a big book, a big, big book. And like I said, we're not going to be able to get to every single thing. But I want to start out with some context, like I always do. You guys know who've been here a long time, context is my favorite word in the world. And uh, so to get that context, we're going to start in Genesis 15. So there was a guy named Abraham. You guys know Abraham. And uh, that song, Father Abraham had many sons and many, right? All the kids were Father Abraham, all that stuff, right? Great. That is a song about a covenant promise that God made to Abraham. And we see that covenant here in chapter 15. It says uh, in, where did it go here? In verse 7. Yeah, verse 7, chapter 15, verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, bring me a heifer three years old, three female goats three years old, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. He brought all of these, he cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham or Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, he, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. All right. God is letting him know, hey, you're going to have, and there are different verses, different like callbacks to the, uh, to the covenant. 
Abram, look at the stars. You can't even count them all. That's how many kids you're going to have. That's, those are your descendants. Look at the sand. You can't count it. That's going to be your descendants. But troubling times are coming for them. One of the descendants of Abram, Abraham, ultimately is a guy named Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He lives in Egypt. He becomes second in command of the entire nation, right? And they create this great bond between Joseph's people, ultimately Abram's people, and the Egyptians. But guess what happens? Abram, uh, uh, Joseph ends up passing away, right? Like people do. In chapter 50, verse 24, it says this, though. Remind you, what God said to Abram. So chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. The plan was not to just take over Egypt. God had something better for them. Right? And as you uh, go into Exodus, and we're going to like speed through until we're going to get to the verses that we want to talk about, it says that there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, right? And the promises that were made there. And so that could literally mean he didn't know Joseph and didn't hear about it. But I feel like that's kind of hard because. Uh, if you've ever watched like National Geographic or something, you see that the Egyptians are really good about like keeping records, right? They're really good about that. And so it's, it's, it's probable that the Pharaoh knew what happened, but took a stance of that was such a long time ago, who cares, right? And look, look at these people because God blessed that nation like he said he would to Abraham. And they grew and they expanded. And the Pharaoh was like, if these people rise up, we will not be able to stop them. So what did they do, right? They then just pounced on these people and, and, and threw them into slavery, right? And there are many instances in the Bible where it talks about slavery and, you know, theologians and pastors, we need to be careful to not look at every single version of that kind of slavery as like what we Americans think of slavery, right? Sometimes slavery was just like a necessary thing. It just meant, hey, you were paying back a debt, and then when you were done, you were done, right? And we read later in Mosaic Law that even slaves every seven years were supposed to be set free. But this was Egypt. When you think of this slavery, you think of the bad slavery, the one that we know here in the United States, very similar, very oppressive, murderous awful, right? That is the kind of slavery that the people of God found themselves in for 400 years. What that means, I want to put that into perspective, that means that there were children born into slavery, lived their whole life, died in slavery, and never knew anything else. And then their kids were born into slavery lived a full life in slavery, died, and didn't know anything else. There were whole generations of people who only knew bondage. And it got to a point where even with that, the people were growing and expanding, and the Pharaoh kept getting more and more nervous. And so he throws out this law. See if this sounds familiar to you. He says, take all the baby boys 
and kill them, right? Kill the boys. And there's, there's man, there's, there's two things that are significant about this. One, that, number one, he's trying to control the population literally. But also, there's just something that happens when you take all of the men, a whole generation of men, for the most part, out of a society. You need men. You need women. You need both. You need them to live together. You emasculate an entire nation of people by going after the boys. This was bad. It was really bad. And yet, we see an example. We've been talking about this in the last four weeks with Ruth, that God is sovereign even in these kinds of stories. That God was sovereign. He is sovereign despite the enemy's plans, right? So what ends up happening, right? And I'm like giving you the crash course. Moses is born. But Moses' like, family is like, no, no, there's something special about him. We can't let him be taken. So they make this basket and they put it in the Nile and it floats on down. It could have gone anywhere, but it just so happens, come on, it just so happens to end up by Pharaoh's daughter And it just so happens to be that the Egyptians believed that the Nile itself was a god. And it just so happens that this Pharaoh's daughter had been having some issues conceiving a child. So when this baby boy floats right into her area, she sees it as, hold on, these are my gods speaking to me. I recognize that it's a Hebrew boy, but I'm going to keep it because the gods must be trying to tell me something, right? <laughs> Even, man, that just shows you, the enemy is powerless, guys. Like, God is even manipulating, like, the little gods and stuff that the enemy sets up to try to mess with people. God's like, listen, I'm way over this. Like, I'm going to use that to my advantage, right? Guys, he is the most powerful, most amazing thing ever, and so Moses is raised with an Egyptian like, kind of subculture because he gets to be raised for a while by his mom. That's a blessing, right? So he gets to be in touch with his Hebrew roots, but then he also understands like the Egyptian culture and is like given this advanced education and he's just a really, really kind of blessed guy. All of his peers would have been murdered, but he lived because of God's sovereignty, right, over a certain situation. So we find ourselves now, let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, what uh, what we read this morning. My Bible uh, has a little heading there. It says, God hears Israel's groaning. And it says, during those days, or during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Mind you, I skipped the part here. I'm assuming some of you have heard the story, but if not, Moses ends up seeing an Egyptian hurting a Hebrew and kills the Egyptian because he's like, this is not right. But that's illegal, right? So he runs away. And he lives somewhere else. He gets married. He does all this stuff. And now it says, in those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Some versions, uh, the version I like the best that like words this is the New Living Translation. It says, and God knew it was time to act. Right? It's been 400 years, but the cries, the groaning of the people, they rose up to God. He says, now's the time. Now is the time for me to insert myself and save my people. It just gets broken up, right? God heard them, right? We sing that song, God, incline thine ear to us, right? He, he hears. This is a God who doesn't, isn't far away. He hears you. And then it says that he remembered his covenant. Not that he had forgotten, right? But just that he said, and it comes together, this is now the time to act. I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I need to fulfill that promise. It says that God saw what his people were going through, right? He considered their, their plight. He, he, just, he came down and witnessed it firsthand. And it says that God knew it was time to act. He was concerned for his people. And then, right, because maybe you know people like this who uh, sometimes this happens a lot in Christian circles, we'll just say, where it's like you pour your heart out to somebody, man, I'm really going through something right now. And then the person hits you with, man, like, I'm going to keep you in my prayers. And then they dip, (laughs) they leave, and you never see them again, you never hear from them again, they don't check in on you, right? God could have like heard and seen, right, and, 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 and observed and knew it was time to do something and then not do anything. He could have. That's what an unloving God would do, right? I mean, we can, we can break this down and remember, like, how small we are, right, how relatively insignificant we might feel, right? He could have looked down and been like, ah, forget it. Like, Abram's not around anymore, Isaac's not around, Jacob's not around, And the implication is also that these people may have forgotten, like big groups of people may have really forgotten who they were. Mind you, generations on generations of people lived in a region that was hostile to who they were. People weren't praying. People weren't having church. They were working Right? That's why when we get to uh, Exodus 20 and we talk about the Ten Commandments, that the, that the Sabbath is so important because it was basically like an affront to what the Egyptians did, right? Like work, 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 and God is saying rest, 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 but I'm getting ahead of myself. God acted, and so what he did, Moses who had run away, God calls him through the bush. And we could spend a long time here, but in short, basically, Moses argues with God. He says, listen, I have a speech impediment, so I shouldn't be me. And God says, hey, like, who do you think made your mouth? Like, I could fix that, right? Uh, And then it ultimately comes to a point where Moses is like, I'm going to be honest with you, God. I don't want to go. And God is like, well, I'm God, so you're going, right? Like, Like, you're going. And so Moses goes, there's no more arguments left. God even says, listen, I'll help you. I'll bring your brother. You guys can do this together so that it's not just you by yourself. You're going. 
And so Moses makes his way back down to Egypt. He confronts the Pharaoh and says, hey, you got to let my people go. You got to let God's people go. And the Pharaoh's like, oh, yeah? I'm going to make their work harder. And so then Moses comes back and is just like, God, it's not working. Uh, It's not working, God. What are we going to do here? And if you will turn with me to Exodus 6. Exodus 6, verse 1. Right? There's this theme of God is like, hey, I'm God. So watch what I'm about to do. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning. Now here we're back there again. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be, uh, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What does it mean, right, when God says, I am the Lord? It means a lot of things, right? And it's interesting in the way that God sets this up. It's like bookends, right? I am the beginning and the end. He says, he starts with, I am the Lord, and he ends with, I am the Lord, and everything in between are my promises, right? So when you see a note right? Come across your desk. It has a signature on it, right? It'll say from so-and-so, right? And it'll end sincerely, so-and-so, right? When you read that name, there are certain characteristics about that person that automatically come into your mind because you know them, right? Maybe you don't know them, right? And in this context, the people, there may have been people who did not know who God was. And so then at that point, the only way to really get to know that person is to like read the letter and learn what you can about them, right? Is that, does that make sense? I'm not trying to like trick anybody. I, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like super like heady or whatever. So I am the Lord, I am the Lord, everything in between for people who may not know who the Lord is can be summarized in seven promises. God makes seven promises to his people. 
The first three are promises of redemption, right? God says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you, right? If you were here for the series on Esther, you know that Boaz stood in the way of bad things happening to Ruth and Naomi by saying, I am the kinsman redeemer. I stand in the way and I say, all the bad things that have happened to you stop here, right? And so God, in his sovereignty, redeems his people from slavery. I will bring you out, I will free you, and I will redeem you. The two promises after that are then of adoption, right? He says, uh, he says I will, uh, where did it go? I will make you my children, right? Where did it go here? Yeah, I will take you to be my people, number one. And number two, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, right? We've talked about this as well. There is a, just something super powerful about being a child of God, to be invited into the family, right? Kids, you don't have to worry about anything. Mom and dad handle it, right? And it's the same thing when you become a child of God. He says, I'm inviting you to the house. I'm inviting you to the table. I'm inviting you to take my name. Now, guess what? You don't have to worry about anything. And then finally, the final two uh, promises uh, say, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and I will give it, uh, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. Okay. There's two things that are significant about this. Number one, it's just that God is seeing through all the promises that he made. He's seeing through to the covenant that he made. But also, if, if, if someone gives you land, it is, it's communicating, hey, I'm giving you the ability for a future, right? Build a home, raise a family, make a city, right? God is promising them, not only will I save you, redeem you, not only will I make you mine, but I'm going to provide for you a future, right? We read in the Bible, he has plans for you to give you a hope and a future. And it's like amazing that you see how Bible verses come together and it all makes sense. But the coolest thing about this section is that in English, probably even in Spanish and any of your translations that are not Hebrew, this takes on a different, like, it's a different connotation. It says, I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my people, and I will take you to the land. I will, I will, I will, all in the future, as in it has not happened yet, right? And as you're reading the story, you would agree, because they are currently in bondage. They are currently slaves. They are currently having a bad time. And so we read that, and we're like, that's amazing. Like, the promises of God for me are going to come true someday, right? We insert ourselves into the story. But what's What's amazing about this section 
is that in Hebrew, the language it was originally written in, so the people who are, are, are hearing this would understand this, is that all of these uh, I will, I will, I will in Hebrew are actually written in the past tense. Does that make... Guys, <laughs> they are written. I even wrote it down here. Uh, it says... Uh, that they are written in the past perfect tense, meaning they already happened, right? Are you, are you understanding the significance of that? So instead of saying, I will save you, and I will bring you to the land, and I will make you my people, the actual wording of this is, I already saved you, and I already made you my children, and I already gave you the future. Past tense. All of it is past tense. The scholars have a word for this because then you're saying, well, then why was it translated this way? Well, this kind of wording happens a few times in Scripture, and they call it, uh, they have a name for it, they call it the uh, prophetic perfect tense. The prophetic perfect tense, right? It doesn't mean it. Maybe it doesn't mean anything to you. But it means something to me, and I hope that it means something to you. I want to communicate it to you. The promises of God are so sure in your life. The Word of God is so sure that when God says, I have these plans for you, there's not a thing in the universe that can stop Him from fulfilling those promises to you. And so, we live our lives as if they've already happened. You guys ever had a sure thing? You ever had a sure thing where some, I'm just going to make something up. This is like the best day in the world. If somebody says, if you are here, 7 a.m., I will put $5,000 in your hand. It's a sure thing. Are you going to be there? I would. 100%. If the person, it's a sure thing. If you're just here at 5 a.m., I'm going to give you $5,000. No questions asked, no gimmicks, no games. Listen, the promises of God are such a sure thing that when he communicates them to you, to his people, he's communicating, I already did those things. It's a sure thing. The theological implications of this are even bigger than that in that God does not live in time the way that we do, right? You've been here the last two years. What is my favorite uh, Ellen White quote? As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. He lives outside of time. The second there was sin, he inserted himself into the story, and at that moment, the second he showed up, the devil lost. It's a sure thing. No, none of this, I am going to do this, I am going, and, and you wonder, man, is it that, is, is it really going to happen? Is it? We can walk in our lives, our daily lives, with the assurity that God already did the things he said he was going to do. 
That changes you. That changes how you walk through life. Imagine walking into a job interview knowing you already got the job and every other person sitting out in the lobby is a loser. How confident do you walk in? Imagine walking through life and when the devil takes your job, right? And imagine walking through life and your brother or your sister passes away. Imagine walking through life and your kid ran away. Imagine walking through life just feeling completely lost and that there's nothing going well in my life. But guess what? God already said it was over. What does that do to your confidence? What does that do to your daily walk? If that doesn't put a pep in your step and, 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 you, and man, you, you throw your shoulders back and you say, I wish you would, Satan. Because he already beat you. He already did. It changes your life. I'm telling you, I, 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 I read through this and I was telling Raquel, I was like, how did they not tell me this? In the uh, seminary, how did I not? That's awesome. How come I never heard of the prophetic perfect tense that changes everything? Every promise of God that you read has already been fulfilled. So walk in life as though it's already happened. And you might be saying, like the people we're saying to Moses, look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because, their broken, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They couldn't fathom that truth because when they looked around, all they saw was evil. Their spirits were broken. Again, the Hebrew translates this a little bit differently. Not that this English version is wrong, but it says that, that they were just at a loss for breath. They couldn't breathe, right? Spirit, in Hebrew, that word uh, ruach, it can mean spirit, it can mean breath, Right? Uh, and the broken could also mean like shortness of. So they couldn't believe this truth because of their shortness of breath. They were exhausted. They were exhausted. Literally, physically exhausted and spiritually exhausted. Egypt had done everything they could do to break the people. And so when Moses comes with this prophetic, perfect tense and says, you're already saved. You are already part of the family. You already have that land. They couldn't believe him. And there are people in life There are people here in this room, online, on the podcast, whoever is listening to this, there is someone, at least one, who is saying to me, that sounds awesome, the prophetic perfect tense, but look at my life. 
Pastor Ben, everywhere I look is something bad. Pastor, you don't even begin to understand the loss that I have faced in the last 365 days. Pastor, you don't begin to understand the hurt that I have faced in the last six months. Pastor, you don't begin to understand the evil that has surrounded my life. Pastor, I have shortness of breath. I I can't believe the things you're telling me. I'm not saying that you should feel bad for feeling that way, right? Like, because you're probably right. You're probably, I can't probably understand what you're feeling right now. I can't put myself into your shoes with all of the bad things that have happened and then accept that and just say, like, that makes sense to me because, yeah, I'm... I already have the land, like I already have the sonship, I already have the salvation, but look at me. I, I, I can't, not right now in my current state, I probably cannot relate to you. And there are people's stories that I've heard, some of the stories that you don't tell other people that are way, way crazy, way, way painful. And so I, I, I tell you this, right? I, I, I bring this to your attention because it's true. I mean, I know you can't feel it right now, but it is true. And so I, I bring it to your attention so that when you're going through the worst of it, you can look At the evil in your life, you can look at the devil who's manifested himself in so many different places in your life and say, you lost. Get out. You can't hurt me. You lost. I I I tell you these things so that you might be encouraged. And I know it might not feel that way, but man, I don't know what else to tell you. It's true. All the devil can do in your life is lie to you. That is it. When Christ came and died for you, he won. So the only thing left the devil has is to lie. He lies really well. He's the father of lies. And so we believe him. But how do, we, how do we fight the lie? Well, we fight it with truth. And so I'm telling you the truth. You have already been redeemed. You have already been invited in to the family of God. Right? And he has already planned a future for you. Already. And so maybe there's some of you who are just eating this up like I was and just saying, like, this is amazing. Okay? Well, I'm telling you and I'm telling me as I'm reading this that when something bad happens, 
when the devil lies to my face, that I will put myself back here in Exodus chapter 6 with the prophetic perfect tense and remember that the only thing happening to me right now is fake. It's a lie. It's not real. Because what's real is eternity. What's also interesting about chapter 6 is that every single one of those promises is in the first person. God says, I will save you. I will invite you into the family. I will give you the land. He doesn't send someone else to do it. He's not too busy for you. Right? He himself will do those things. You cannot lose. When it came time for Mary to bear, uh, to, to hold the Savior of the world, right? It wasn't some random angel. It wasn't some representative. It was God who became flesh and dwelt among us in the first person. When something had to die so that you could live, God didn't send some other angel or some other person. He died himself for you in the first person. Do you realize how loved you are? That he would do that for you? And you say, but God, look at all the bad things. Look at all the evil. Look, I've been the evil in other people's lives. And he says, listen, you were deceived. You were told that you were someone else, that you were something else. I'm bringing you home myself. And guess what? After he died... He rose again. He went to heaven. But guess what? As you study the scriptures, he says, I'm coming back for you. I am coming back for you. Not an angel, not some representative. God is coming back for you. And man, those promises... Just walk through life with the confidence that they will happen. They will. God, man, God's word is true, and he is faithful to his promises. Man, it's like I think about how the people couldn't believe what they were hearing because, like it says, the shortness of breath, the, like, the evil one is just standing on their chest. They can't breathe. They can't move. This oppression. Uh, and I think a lot, even, even though the truth was right there in front of them, they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't think of it. I think of little Timmy, right? Little Timmy 
who every counselor in Nasoka was saying, stand up, Timmy. You are already safe. But he couldn't believe it. He could not believe it because what was going on around him. That's what that feels like. Right? Timmy, you are already safe. Just stand. Imagine the confidence he would have had if he understood and believed that if the kid took his floaty away, he could just stand up. He would have just stood. If you get nothing else, know that according to the, just the word of God, that you are already safe. Now, despite what happened last week, last month, last year, despite what happens tomorrow, next week, next year, you are already safe if you be in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. Not a thing. You are already safe now. So, man, walk through life with a crazy amount of confidence. Because he already spoke over your life. And the future looks good. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much. God, number one, thank you for (laughs) revealing this wording Uh, And just thank you for being a God who is so trustworthy, so faithful, that when you say something, we can already act and live as though it's already happened. God, thank you for a sure thing. God, I pray that that love that you have poured out on this earth, God, would, would separate us from darkness. God, that we would look and see the light and say, man, I need to be there. God, man, just bless these people, whatever they're going through. I know there are some situations here that are really hard. God, I know there are some people here who are having a really good time, but who knows when something bad might happen to them. And God, I just pray that in our darkest moments, we would remember your promises, that we would remember the truth and not the lies that Satan throws our way. God, we look forward to the day when you will come again. God, that you will take us home, that we will become uh, perfect, imperishable. Nothing bad could ever happen to us again. We look forward to that day, but God, may we move with confidence knowing that that day is a sure thing, and nothing will stop it. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.